Well, welcome everyone. Welcome to the podcast. This is Life in the Peloton. I'm Mitch Docker and the podcast is being brought to you by our proud partners, Rafa. I love speaking about Rafa. I'm really excited about working with them in the podcast, also on the bike as well. But the RCC, the Rafa Cycling Club, is an amazing part of Rafa that I love chatting about too and experiencing now on the bike as a non-pro. The Rafa Cycling Club is an active cycling community of members who share Rafa's love of riding. It's made up of chapters based out of the clubhouses all around the world. They have regular group rides each week or multiple times a week, depending on which city and which clubhouse that you're in or you're visited, where if you live in that city, you have a group to catch up with and ride with each week. It's a great little community that you can just catch up with. You know there's going to be a ride. You go and do your loop. It's all different speeds, all different levels. Like I said, depending on which city and which clubhouse you're in. But the best thing about it is if you're an RCC member and you're traveling around the world to different cities, you just head across and check out the different RCC rides that are happening in that city. You get to be taken out and explore the area with ride leaders and that community and learn where to ride with from them. Another great part of it is too, you don't even have to go with your bike. The RCC clubhouses have bikes for you to hire. The RCC, it's a great part of Rafa. They're not just about producing that amazing cycling clothing. It's the cycling club as well. It's all for the love of riding. That's why I love having Rafa as a partner on the podcast, because that's what we're trying to do here in Life in the Peloton, is tell you about this great sport of cycling. Now to the episode, a great episode we've got for you this week. It is talking with a good friend of mine now, Scott Burrow. He is a performance coach, work, life or sport, helping people get the best out of themselves and their situations. He can make you go from feeling stuck to making the magic happen. That's exactly what was happening with me back in 2017 when I was a professional. I came to this point where I was moving on from Orica Green Edge and I didn't know if that was going to be the end of my career or what was going to happen. I was stuck. Coincidentally, at this time, our paths crossed and it was an amazing chance for me to explore what was going on in my mind. And it was an amazing chance for me with his help to explore what was going on and ultimately prolong my career for another four years when I moved into EF education. I'm not going to go too much more into the story because that's what we're going to do in this podcast. Scott and I get to explore what happened with me back in 2017, how he was able to help me realize what I needed from my career as a pro cyclist. But the best thing about Scott is it's not just about sport as well. He explores that same idea with people in their normal workspace and life in general. That's what we're talking about today. Life behind the mirror lenses. What's going on in these professional cyclist minds, professional sporting minds, and everyone's ticking clock up there. It was really interesting for me and actually something that I do naturally when I'm doing the podcast. And that's something he realized in me as well. People ask me, what are the things that I've taken over from my pro life, aside from my riding legs, of course, and it's athletic greens. I was using AG1 when I was racing overseas. As a pro, it was all about performance, the elite stuff. And even though I was using athletic greens when I was racing, I feel like now when time is a little bit more precious, it's really my go-to. 
It's an all-in-one packed full of vitamins and minerals. It's got superfood complexes, probiotics, plant extracts, antioxidants, enzyme and mushroom complex. It's all there. I like to start every day with AG1. I have one small scoop mixed with water. I like to put a bit of ice in it, shake it up, ready to go. I have it first thing in the morning. It's just the perfect way to start the day for me. I often have a quick coffee and hit the road on an early ride. If a comprehensive solution is what you need from your supplement routine, The Athletic Greens is giving you a one free year supply of vitamin D plus five free travel packs with your first purchase. I can't recommend it enough, guys. Go across and check it out. Athleticgreens.com slash life in the peloton. That's athleticgreens.com slash life in the peloton. Now, guys, this is a bit of a different episode to the last few episodes we've had. There have been big episodes, the Cape Epic episode two weeks ago. Of course, what is mountain biking before that? Now, a change in tact, but all the same feel. Let's get off the bike and let's understand what is going on in our heads as pro cyclists, but also just as normal human beings. Guys, sit back and enjoy this one. I bring you Scott Burrow. Well, Scott, we've uh, finally caught up. We're out near where you are living these days, out in the country here. We're sitting in the um, Life in the Peloton recording studio, the moving recording studio. Mate, it's great to have you on the pod finally after we worked together sort of probably about five or six years ago now, wasn't it? Well, I remember Norway, the world's 2017. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, that's awesome. Um, for so long, we, you know, we'd had a lot to do with each other, but never in person. So here it is. It's a bit weird, isn't it? And great at the same time. Well, I've just sort of got you on the mic as well, and you know, rather than just catching up, I'm like, oh, I can just, I can have a chat to you as well and record it. Yeah, it's brilliant. Well, before we get going um, and start talking about a few things, I want you to sort of set the scene for everyone and explain, um, you know, who you are and what do you do. So my name's Scott Barrow. I live in Warrandyte, so I'm in the outskirts of Melbourne. I got a family, three kids, some dogs, wife, all that. I've been working in in sport and coaching and performance my whole working career. The first part of my career for about 15 or so years, it was very much hands-on with athletes. So a lot of the sports science and physical preparation and conditioning and all that sort of thing. And then about midway after that period, then I shifted and I got trained in a different form of coaching. Um, And it's known as professional coaching. It's just a label it's given. But that's the type of coaching that people use for leaders, leadership coaching, uh, performance coaching, coaching in organisations, coaching to really help people ramp up their learning so they can get out- outcomes that they mightn't otherwise get. So for people who are sort of maybe feeling stuck and they need to go to that next level, that's sort of the work I do. We're talking about mental coaching, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. The first part of my career was physical coaching, if you like, in simple terms, and then I shifted into sort of essentially me- mental coaching. Yeah, so helping people work out what they want how they're going to go about it, and then it's an ongoing sort of uh, relationship navigating the ups and downs of all that. And what sort of people are we talking about? You know, clearly I was a sportsman, but that does, mm. it's not specific only to sports people, is it? Yeah. Yeah, I love I love working in sport. I do work with athletes and some coaches as well. But in particular, as uh, additional to that, um, I work with business owners, usually small business owners, 
sort of the people who have to do it all themselves and some executives. Um, and so I can imagine now perhaps people might be listening and going, well, yeah, but what the hell is he talking about? Well, look, it, the, the topic that you work with people on are, are quite varied because it's not about me going, I know exactly what you need to do. I'm not taking a, an ex, uh, like a subject matter expert approach. Mm. It's more helping them work through a process. And so I've worked with, <laughs> I've worked with world, um, world uh, winning uh, hairdressers. I've worked with cabinet <laughs> cabinet ministers uh, in in um, Indonesia. I've worked with business owners and executives. It's really w- wide and varied. So it's almost like a generalist performance coaching approach. Does that make sense? Or am I? Well, I'm, I'm rambling a little let's bit. Let's go back to the beginning yeah, then. Yeah. Where, how did it really start for you? And how did you realise that you had this? I guess you could call it talent. You know, this ability to, or I guess the wants maybe as well. Where did it all sort of formulate from and they had you transition into this yeah i think i grew up with two parents who were very sort of um conscious of sort of teaching and helping and supporting Mm. my own learning and uh, and then i actually started what started coaching my local baseball team when i was 16 i was coaching down to 14s when i was 16 so i kept it going in the background and while i was playing my own sport and then i just liked working with people and helping people like i said the first part of my major part of my career was in the physical preparation with high performance athletes with afl Mm. um olympic level athletes um medalists right down to developmental athletes as well and then the key thing i think for now and the work that we did together after that time I'd been exposed to using some methods which help people learn um, not just about like how to do a skill or how to hit a ball or but also how to get more out of themselves whatever the, the, the area and that was really interesting to me and then I was able to discover that there's a way of learning and training and qualifying yourself so that you can help people in a skillful way in all this in the beginning were you learning like as you said you were learning to help other people i guess we're right from the beginning there's there's a bit of a i guess a kickback that you were like it was fulfilling for you as well yeah it, absolutely i love helping people but then the some of the things that, that motivates me is um i'm interested in the craft of this coaching work so it's like that's my version in some ways of performance so I'm here to say I'm here to help you and I'm continually checking in with what's what what's mm. going to be most helpful for you I've got some tools and some ways so I'm doing that but at the same time I'm very interested in the craft of how good I can be to help you if that mm. makes sense so that is a motivating factor if you're not interested in that part of it your own craft of how you work then I think after a while the, the interest of it dries up when we say helping and you've said yeah. it a few times now how do you actually help you know what are the you know the the nuts and bolts if we can just talk about it quickly because we're going to get into my story uh, after this and we can yeah. unpack it a bit more but just in general you know you, how do you help people people usually come to me when they're not satisfied one way or another either they're not getting results or they're getting the results is coming too much of a cost or they've got an up coming challenge or an opportunity that they're wondering how they're going to do it or they've got pressure from a time point of view or an energy point of view or like say in your case you had to get results you had to be at a certain level you had to make sure of that so there's a degree of accountability and pressure Mm. so they come to me when they're not quite satisfied and and then they're thinking well the way i've done it or the what i've got around me or it might not get the job done 
to their satisfaction. So they come to me that. Then what we do, we work out, well, what do you want? Mm. What do you want here? And what does it look like? What does that look like? And how do we know when we get there? And so you sort of, there, there's a bit of goal setting, there's a bit of vision, but also matching that up with who are you as a person, what's important to you, and how do we sort of bring all that together? So you've got your endpoints. Where you're at right now, where you want to be, or who you want to be, mm. or how you want to be, and then how we get there, and what are the steps along the way? Well, let's talk now about our relationship in the beginning, um, and I guess mm. really, you know, how we how we met. You know, as far as I remember, you know, you contacted me and said, "Hey, look, I'm I'm listening to the podcast. Shout out to the Life and the Peloton podcast now." Um, <laughs> but it was something you picked up in in my language, I think you said, and and the way I was questioning other other athletes or other you know people who were on the podcast, and that inquisitiveness I had about their I guess their psyche or you know their mentality. Um, and you said, you know, is this something you're interested in? And that was sort of this reach out. It was at a really pinnacle time in my career because. At that moment, whether I'd known it or not, I realized I wasn't going to be riding with Green Edge anymore. I think I hadn't been offered a contract. I knew I was going to have to move on. And I was at this sort of crux in my career where I had to learn how to get results again. I had to show myself. At that point, I'd been a pro for about eight years. I'd been doing a job, in my eyes, very successfully, a job to put sprinters in the position, help classics men in their role, domestique role or lead out men, as we call it. And all of a sudden, I was faced with this this task of, okay, now it's time for me to get results. Mm. As simple as that sounds, I couldn't do it. Mm. I couldn't go that step forward in a lead out in a sprint scenario was I would get the sprinter to 200 meters to go. Suddenly doing that final 200 meters myself, whenever I got the opportunity in that final year with Green Edge, I couldn't make the final step. There was a mental block. And it, coincidentally, it was this time that you were sort of reaching out. And I don't know why you were reaching out and what, what angle you saw, but it just came at a perfect time for me that that was the help that I needed. I didn't realize it at the time, but as we started to work together, we started to unpack that. Mm. Can you remember those, those moments and, and how it sort of formulated for you? Yeah, I definitely can remember it. At that point in time, I didn't know that you might have been in the position where you're transitioning from pure domestique to needing to show yourself more because maybe you had a sense that that contract was finishing up but I, I definitely heard you when I was when you were interviewing these people I heard a, just a general curiosity as a person and you're asking questions and you're doing interviews but I also felt I felt like I was listening to someone who was looking for answers or um, yeah looking for mm. answers and so I I just thought, you know what, I feel like I could might be able to help this bloke. And it, it's pretty weird. You, you didn't know me, I didn't know you, and here I am contacting you out of the blue. I had to pester you a little bit to try and prove that I was legitimate <laughs> rather than just a pesty fa- uh, pesky fanboy. But um, I remember I said, listen, I've just picked up some things around, you know, your own performance and, and, and um, avenues or, or trying to find ways that you might be able to improve and go to that next level will change your writing and the reason why I picked these up because this is the work I do and therefore would you be interested in having a chat about what we might be able to do together so that you know that's coming out of the blue from a stranger and, and good good on you you sort of you said yes at least you're open to having a chat and that, that was where I was coming from. Well, I think it was just, like I said before, it was just at that perfect timing where, you know, I've been a big believer of 
throughout my whole career to build your own team around you, whether that was a strength trainer or whether that was mentors or, you know, your own personal coach. And you were another piece to that puzzle, I felt. Something that I feel like is very much um, underrated in all the sporting industry, but I can only speak for cycling, is the mental power, you know, the the psychological side of an athlete. We Mm. sharpen the tools so much with our physical performance and deem that as the most important thing don't know what the percentage would be, but I almost feel like we need to go 50-50 with the, with the mind as well. Mm. So at this time, it was very important for me to reinvent myself almost. Mm. Um, and it is a common thing with athletes and uh, cyclists is that they fall into a niche that they're good at. You know, lead out man, domestiques on a climb, whatever. There's only a few guys that are, are the pure winners. Mm. They need that support around them. And once that niche dries up or there's no need for it anymore, the team deems that, suddenly it's like, well, I've got to quickly adapt, change myself, go back to what I used to be able to do. Yeah. If you can't mentally do that, and Mm. I mean like find the confidence or, I don't know, what is that? Why do we come... become blocked why was I blocked at that time yeah I think like you say you've been sort of so in that role and and like you said doing it what you perceive to be well and I remember a comment you made you said you know teams will say just do the team thing you know do what we need you to do this is your role Mitch you know do and then when it comes to contract time it's like where are your result so um yeah i think it's maybe it's a focus point because at that point like why do you pigeonhole yourself because you have defined you have defined your role and you become really good at it and so maybe overall your objective is to be really good at that role but if you're playing a bigger game you're saying if right from the start you're saying yeah i'm going to play this domestic role i'm going to do it but i'm also going to keep one eye on those opportunities Mm. when it's my time to have a crack but not many young riders would have that maturity or confidence to, to have that hold that attitude, I imagine. You know what I mean? They might be going, oh, what if people think I'm, you know, saving a bit for myself, for example. It's a slippery slope. It's like you pointed out a really good point. As you come in, you're just happy to be accepted in the team. Mm. You're happy to make that step. And you're ready to take direction from the team. You're not thinking, you've got the confidence in the team. You're not thinking, oh, I need to watch out for my own back at this well. point. Yeah. But actually, that's something you need to be always doing. Yeah, and I think in the career of professional cycling, that's that's the game within the game. Yeah, you need to be good on, in races and that. But you also got to be managing your own career and go, okay, if I just do this and that dries up for whatever reason... Where does that leave me? You know what I mean? Or they, you get to say you're 33 years of age and they're looking at a 23-year-old guy and they go, well, this guy's going to be half half the money and we reckon he can pretty much do that same role anyway, even though you're so experienced and so good at it. Yeah, I think you need to be playing the game of performing well, but then you've got to be like, so a bit further back strategically and going, well, where, where does this leave me? And what, what, are, what other options do I need to make sure stay open for when I need to shift if I do need to shift? When you remember us talking in the beginning, um, and I guess in general now, when you're starting with a new client, how does it? How do you start up the conversation, and how do you sort of work through this process? Is it is it asking these questions, or you've you've got the the oversight of the knowledge, and you're helping pointing in direction? What does the process look like? And if you can remember my process, mm. how do we start working through things? Yeah. So let's just go to your process, maybe because it um, might be better. We agreed that we wanted to work together. And so the first, I still remember the first session, the first session essentially was like, so what do you want here? What, what what might I be able to help you with here? Essentially, you were saying two things, what I heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, what I remember, you said, well, I want to be able to win a race. And then you said, but if I even, if I get to the end of my career and I haven't been able to do that, I want to know that I got the most out of myself. Mm. 
So that was that were the two things I was in. So one was quite tangible, and then the other one getting most because I understand in, in cycling you can do everything right and still not win a race. You know, it's a superficial evaluation to say, oh, that person win races, so they're a good rider, and that person hasn't won a race, so they're not a good rider. Mm. I get that. So yeah, that's the starting point. What are we trying to do here? There's two ways I can go from there, and then I can sort of take the reins and go. So what do you think? Where do we where do we start within that project? Or uh, I might ask the client, say, well, how do you normally like to start? on projects that are important to you. Mm. So as much as possible, I'm trying to keep the ball in the, in the client's court to help them become tap into their own resourcefulness and stuff that they often already know how to do, but that it might be just a bit covered up to them in that moment. And I remember identifying those two goals, and it's, it's very true, and it still rings true to me now, and it's been something that I do believe in is, is, is goal setting and having that tangible goal, but not being, and maybe this is sounds a bit of a cop-out, but not being completely fixated on that as a um, success or not a success. Yeah. Because I love what you do on the way to achieving that goal. Yeah. And for me, at the end of all that, of course you want to achieve that goal, but what comes out of trying to achieve that goal, for me, is almost more interesting than what you achieving it. That is just the nice little cherry on top. Yeah. But the beautiful big cake underneath is what you've created. Um, because... You've set yourself on this path that you would have never have gone on. And that's what happened with us. Yeah. I feel like you got me on the road. You asked the right questions at that time for me to set this this tangible goal. But what I achieved on the way to that prolonged my career for another four years after that and mm. made me into a new rider where I went on to the, my new team, EF, as a reborn rider in a way, psychologically. Mm. Physically, I think you push the limits of me too. But I think they were always there. It was mm. just more opening up the, the gates again that belief mm, yeah and um, I imagine too I'm going to assume here but that racing became more interesting to you again it became more um, more like ref- uh, not refreshing sort of um, interesting and more seeing race as an opportunity rather than I've just got to do my job and make sure I get the result that I need to do is, is that a fair call yeah and I think very much along the way you looking back on it now of course you have that um that idea that yeah you try and take the easy way out but in the moment it feels so important what you're doing and it's it has to feel like that but actually once you take yourself out of the bubble you realize you're just doing your job enough to get through the race yeah. you know we're, we're at the end of the day we're clever human beings aren't we and we're not going to hurt each hurt ourselves more than we have to mm. And that was sort of the mentality that you have as a domestique. You just want to find the way that you are going to be appreciated just as much by the team. But of course, it's the easiest possible way to do that. Yeah. And then the the piece that's missing in that way of thinking is the fulfillment for yourself. Mm. Because like you're doing your job, people saying, well done, and thank you for that, Mitch. But at the same time, you're like... It's not really set my world on fire, you know, and that's not to dismiss the importance of doing those roles, but it's like, yeah, but it probably needs to be a little bit more than that for me. More pressure, maybe, you know, right. but that's the thing. The question Asking want, more of yourself, wanting what, more for yourself. What is pressure? You know, what is this, you know, this, this analogy of like, you see this at the World Cup's just been on, you see mm. these guys who can kick within a 30 centimeter box in the top of a goal and when it comes to the penalty shootout they can miss the whole goal Mm. how can this be possible is this mental what is this mental pressure that these guys are feeling well i think in that's it's really i think in that case it's really simple it's um what if i miss and so your attention goes into what if i miss and all the backstory that's involved in that my what my wife say what will people think all the people have helped me you know all the whole 
you know, it's almost like, you know, when, in movies when they represent someone about to die and their whole world, you know, flashes before them. It's that sort of thing. So their attention is on the things that they don't want to happen, but they know that they don't want that. So that creates that tension as opposed to keeping your attention on what you're there to do. Not not the outcome, but all right, just, I just need to run in and kick this ball and I, I know where I'm going to go with it. Attentional control is one of a key skill of high performance. Attentional control. When I say that, it's like noticing where your attention is and then bringing it back to where you want it to be. And we did that with you and um, about... Where's my attention and where do I want it to be based on what I want to do and what you said you wanted to do, what we arrived at. Sorry to put words in your mouth, but you said the fo- your focus point, which is going to take care of the most, which was to race freely. And and part of what I was hearing when I was working with you was noticing you were saying, oh, noticing my attention was there and then I'd just bring it back to here. What can I do to race freely right now? Mm. Which is trusting your instincts and reading, reading the play and using your experience that you've got. It's exactly right. And it's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up because it was one thing I remember when we were, I thought I had to focus on that end result. Okay, I I want to click in, kilometer one, I'm going to try and finish top 10 today. I'm going to try and win today. All of a sudden, the race is super hard in the first 20, 30 kilometers. Puts that goal at risk, doesn't it? It's like, Uh, how am I going to... I can't... I'm not confident I can do this right now. I'm overwhelmed. Oh, what's going on? My legs are... this is how hard it's going to be, how the hell am I going to get to top 10 or win the race? And what you were able to do with me was focus on the task at hand. Task at hand was following that wheel in front. We broke it down. I remember even breaking it down to the most ridiculous. Mm. Pedal stroke by pedal stroke. Mm. Okay, it sounds ridiculous, but actually when I was becoming overwhelmed yeah, and I just went, you, you know what, to. let's just, just just focus on the next one kilometre. Hang on. Let's just focus on this next little rise here. Mm. Let's just focus on the next 10 seconds. And it's a technique that I've taken on and I've taken, I've sort of morphed it. When I came into Grand Tours, it would be like, I'm hurting so much on this climb. All I need to do is count down from 10 and just hang on for 10 more seconds. Yeah. And, and that feeling has shifted, that concern might have just softened a bit. And the climb, the 20k climb was much too long to, you know, to, to handle. It yeah. just would be overwhelming. Yeah, 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 yeah. But if I hang on 10 more seconds, I could deal with the next 10 yeah. in 10 more. Yeah. Sounds ridiculous, but this little trick was, well, not a trick, it was just having that yeah. control again, other than just losing control. Yeah, and that's part of high performance and a mindset that works for high performance. And that little, what you said, a little trick, it, people go, oh, yeah, there's nothing sexy about it. And if there's a discipline in the practicing of it to be able to do it and keep doing it and go, you know what, this is my way forward. There's no, there's no magic bullets I can sort of rely on here. It's just this. And um, that's what that's like part of the, the learning to recognize this thing works. There's nothing sexier. Um, there's no magic bullet. And yeah, I'm happy to do it. And that works for me. Hey guys, a quick break from the episode to chat about beer. Oh yeah, of course, beer. Bridge Road Brewery, a grassroots independent brewery from the historical country Victorian town of Beechworth. Established in 2005, 18 years ago, with strong values and the importance of independence, authenticity and quality. The best thing about Bridge Road Brewery is they love cycling. And they've got their own cycling event. Can you believe that? Beer and cycling. What a dream. I love these guys. It's called the Beechworth Granite Classic. It's showcasing some of Victorian high country's most picturesque gravel back roads. One of the great things is it's a podium-free affair. It's not a race in its traditional sense, but you just go as hard as you want. It's a great combination of going hard, 
great gravel roads, but of course a great vibe. It's my favorite gravel event. I did it last year. Honestly, I said to everyone after the event, I loved it. It was just a perfect combination. It's a whole weekend of events. Friday night, there's a social shakeout, a 90 minute no drop loop, checking out around Beechworth with a few coldies afterwards, of course. There's a handmade bike show on, on Friday night as well. Saturday is the Granite Classic. That's got varied distances, so you can just choose what suits you. Saturday night is the dinner for the Granite Legends, and Sunday is the recovery ride to roll out some of those beers from the night before. But the best thing of all is the Life in the Peloton beer. Bridge Road and Life in the Peloton have come together to make the very first Life in the Peloton beer. You can hear it in my voice. It's happening. I can't believe it. Finally, me banging on about beer all these years, and we've finally done it. We have got the first Life in the Peloton beer. It's going to be dropping at the Granite Classic in a couple of weeks' time. If you haven't registered, it's the 29th of April. You've got a couple of weeks. Of course, you need to live in Australia. Well, you could fly out from overseas if you're that keen. Get across here because you're going to want to get one of these beers. You're going to be able to order them online, but they're going to go quickly. I will tell you a little bit more about them as it comes up. It's a regional Australian ale with a hint of Belgium, of course. Guys, let's get back to the episode. Let's talk a little bit about the way the the brain sort of works not that I know anything about this but this is something that you were able to determine with me and I was able to sort of flag something with you is this I call it this sort of the chimp reaction I've taken that from another book that I read Mm. Um, this sort of emotional reaction that I was having in in races and continually have as a normal person it's this immediate reaction without thinking you've already said it before you want to and it's out there. Mm. You're like, ah, oh, all right. This is this real emotional reaction. Mm. And we nicknamed it the Mitch Bark, mm. um, which was, it was quite a funny thing because it was like me barking like a dog. It was like when I was in the heat of the moment in a race and I would receive something I didn't like, whether it was a bottle from a car I didn't want or someone, you know, was talking to me at that moment. I didn't like it. And I would just, you know, blow, <sighs> blow up. Exactly. Yeah. And in the position I had in the peloton, uh, in the team, yeah. it was a leader, yeah. um, and I need to portray a bit of leadership, and mm. guys couldn't see me doing that. It wasn't mm. that I had to suppress it, it was more that I had to be aware of when it was coming, and really more acknowledge what had just happened, when it did happen, and be like, cool, that just happened. Next time, I might catch it slightly earlier, and eventually, I would have some kind of control on what was going on, and realize, wow, that normally would send off this reaction, and now I'm aware of that, and yeah. now I can deter it a different way. Yep. What's going on with this in our minds? You know, what is causing this? Because I know a lot of people out there are listening, going, "Oh, yeah." Well, I think it just happens with everyone, doesn't it? I think at that stage, it's almost like a defense mechanism. It's like you, something's building up, and you just want to expel it and get rid of it. And the skill uh, becomes, like you said, noticing it earlier practicing that it's a, a like a version of mindfulness you're being mindful about what you're experiencing what you're feeling in the moment and then you've got a little bit more choice about how you deal with it like say you can the duck you know the duck shakes its, uh, shakes its feathers of the wings off in the in the pond you can sort of expel that pressure that frustration that emotion a little bit better in your especially in the context of the leadership role so i don't want to go into too much because i think I, I might be a bit irresponsible if i could talk a bit much more than that but ultimately it's almost like um it's like the pure animalistic instincts of you something i don't like 
get rid of it, and then I move on. But in the jungle, that's fine for survival. But when you're trying to lead a, lead a team to, to do meaningful performance, we need to be a bit more skillful. Is that something that you have to sort of acknowledge with different clients on all levels, you know, whether it's sportsmen, whether it's businessmen or whatever? Is this something that is, you know, this is it is it ego? Is it something that's damaging our ego? Is it something that, you know, we want to just, we don't like it. So our reaction is just sort of, we can't say that in a professional um, mm. environment, let alone in a non-professional environment, in your home, you know, it's... Yeah, so it is something I work on with people. So it's like, you know, I notice in these, you know, for example, we'll get to, we'll distill it down to, the client might say something, like, oh, okay, so I'm noticing in these sort of situation, I feel these things and this is my tender this is my reaction to it and then it's like okay so what are you noticing so you become more aware of what you're picking up in your body in your mind in your self-talk and then okay well what would be a way that would work better for you and the team that you're leading so it is versions of that definitely is is a factor because ultimately it's about like you say keeping it rather than being overwhelmed putting your attention back onto what you need to do that's going to be most helpful you know what I mean? It's as simple as that, really. With the young guys in the coming into the peloton now, I feel like you know this is something that I went through. But of course, you know, I've I've forgotten about it now. Um, when you first come into the peloton, we spoke about it in the beginning. These guys that have this trust in the team, and you know, they come in, they've got all these great great ideas and actually it's hard mm. i'm not going to say for everyone but it's, it is quite hard mm. you, you your ego takes a bit of a, a kicking in your morale you go to a race you get dropped pull out you go to the next race you punch her pull out again the next race is cold and wet you get dropped you pull out mm. all of a sudden you're going in this downward spiral what are, what are these guys feeling and you know to turn this stuff around why was say for instance me as an example and i'm we weren't working together back then when I was a young guy. You can only speculate. Mm. But is this something that we, to pull yourself out of this, to turn your mentality around, to get your motivation back? Because it is very night or day. You don't get this back and you're out of the peloton in two years. Mm. You find, and no one's really there to help you. You know, in the, in the cycling world, it's like, well, that guy, I don't know what happened to him. He's out. Bugger him. Mm. Opposed to actually addressing him mm. and going, hey, what's going on? Let's, let's help this guy through. So yeah. I guess the question I've got to ask is the young guys that make it through this, what is it if they're not getting help from someone like yourself or someone else out there? Mm. What is this? Is this something that the way they're being brought up? Is this a genetic trait with guys? Is this, you know, like, am I just a hard bastard that got through it or have I actually picked up techniques along the way from different people I've learned or is this something I've just been born with yeah I think I mean that's that nature and nurture argument and there's a case for both but what I hear and what you're saying is that if someone's stepping into a new environment and all of a sudden it's like all on and nothing seems to be working their normal ways of doing things and getting things done and being successful are not working for whatever reason then it's the ability to quickly recognize that accept that and then be able to um, have a different way of going about it and being able to sort of practice it so it becomes um, uh, heat proof under the hottest environments and the high pressure environments. so I think it's that ability to, to quickly sort of it's like your rate of learning in some ways and that's why people 
use people like me. Anyone can reach goals on the, by themselves, but what a coach does or what someone in my position helps people do, they it saves them time and energy and even money. So you're basically accelerating that learning process mm. and, and enriching, enriching it. But yeah, I think definitely for those people who come in, they've got a background. So they come in and that's what they know. Their background is what they know, their whole life experience at that point. They come in and all of a sudden it's a new Wild West environment. It's like, Jesus Christ, it's on here. The quicker they are to learn that that way that they've got might not be working or going to work for them and the quicker they can make changes. So sometimes it takes a while to even recognise what they're doing that's not working. Sometimes they're not even aware of what they're doing is not working. And they keep doing the wrong thing over and over again. Yeah, that's right. The better performers are, 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 are agile and adaptable and they're really good learners. Mm. And and that's where support people can come in because it's, it's hard to do all the learning you need to do in your life or in your career by yourself, like you said, you you surrounded yourself with support people, people who had expertise. And part of it is also, in this case, is like helping people, uh, athletes, become aware of, yeah, what have I been doing? What's what's been working? What's not working? And therefore, like just having that step back to see mm. what you're actually doing. And I can imagine in pro cycling, a lot of it, you got the DS, you got some coaches there now, but it's still pretty. You got to handle yourself, don't you? A lot of it. You got to you got to manage yourself in a lot of ways. Very true, and th- and that's why I try and preach it out to a lot of young guys who are just going across there or have been across there for a few years. The team is great, and this is definitely not slinging on any of the teams yeah, I've been yeah. on. But at the end of the day, it's your career. Yes. The team moves on whether you're with them or not. Yeah. But you build your own team around you. They're going to follow you wherever you go. And their main priority is Mitch Stocker or whoever it might be. That's their team. They're the ones, that's your yeah. own squad. And they're yeah. going to move from Skill Shimano to Green Edge to EF. Yes. That's still going to be, yes. and their main priority is to make you succeed. These teams is to make the team succeed. Yes, exactly. They want to use you as like, not as a pawn, I don't want to use that term, but they want to use you as a component that contribute to their objectives. And that's good for the team. And like you say, but but it might not always be as good for you, for your own opportunities and development. So it's a, it's a fine balance. And that goes back to what you said at the start. If I put all my trust in the team, as I, I'm a, a young rider and I put all my trust in the team and I've been doing this domestique role, say like you, you know, I've done it bloody well for many years and all of a sudden they say, yeah, thanks, Mitch, it's been good. And like, what the f- I've been doing this. So... You need to, just as you need to have a team around you, you need to also own the way you view your career as a a professional athlete and go, all right, this is a domestique role, but I know if I just do that, that might be a dead end in time. I've got to, I've got to, in my mind, at least keep those ideas of other ways of racing. I've got to keep them alive or keep them at the ready. So that's the ownership of your own career and your own performance rather than handing over the responsibility to the DS, the team. What are the crossovers here? You know, we're talking mainly about cycling here and it's really interesting to hear and unpack a little bit of what's happening in teams and, you know, but I feel like there's a general crossover here because I feel like cycling's not that exclusive that it doesn't apply to the rest of the world and whatever we're doing. I think we're just talking pretty in general here because a lot of the tools I learnt with you and a lot of the tools I've learned throughout my whole cycling life, I'm applying right now as a retired rider. The stuff that you talked about with me and I'm assuming, you know, the other people and the other different industries you've worked with, it all crosses over. Is that is that true? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Because ultimately it's about um, people want to do things in their life, in their world. 
and sometimes their previous ways are don't work or not likely to work in these upcoming situations. So it's like, how best do I do that? And in more heightened environment where the stakes are sort of higher, if you like, high performance sport, um, business with big big budgets or um, tight timeframes or high high loads, then we then we look at what can help us either do this process better or even easier because sometimes there's an efficiency requirement as well because it's like it's no good me, me um, getting all these results and just being trashed at the end of it. So um, yeah, I think definitely there's a, there's a crossover. Um, and my work, because it's not like it's not sports psychology, although it, it goes into those areas when the client goes there, um, I don't teach directly teach mental skills or anything like that. But my work does definitely it definitely helps people simply go from where they're at to the where they want to be at and navigating that. So yeah, the crossover's there for sure. Well, I was speaking about the end result. You know, when you think about our end result, I've got an idea of what I saw as the success and the end result for me. From your perspective, the process that we worked through and you know, your analysis of what happened, mm. what was the development and what was the end result that you saw what we, we came to? You start off saying, I want to win a race, but at the very least... I want to know I've got the best out of myself. And so the race was there. And then towards the end of the season, you had a few performances. I went, uh, was it the Quebec race or mm-hmm. the, was it Montreal or one yeah. of those? Yeah. Yeah. You, you went off the front to mow someone down at the front. You know, you could have sat, you said you could have sat in for the sprint and got 12, but you went off the front to, to reel in Rigo, wasn't yeah. it, I think? So that, that, and you said to me that you surprised yourself. And so at that point, I was sort of hearing someone who was, breaking free of the shackles of previous identity of a certain way of racing like the domestique and actually trying some things taking risks recognizing that was a part of what was required to get a result for yourself was risk taking rather than the safety of knowing oh, i've just got to get this guy to the 200 meter mark as a leader so i was hearing that and then at the very end you you said to me in correspondence i reached my goal and i'm like but um you said you wanted to try and win a race and you hadn't won a race you got close you got a fourth and a fifth and a whatever else and i'm thinking well there you go okay well something else was going on and the way i interpreted it was that i just thought someone who doesn't want to feel prematurely trapped in an identity or a way they want to know that if they wanted to take it further and get a win they could do it and then finally i wondered for you was that you had a sniff of that you started getting into that you started trying to um, get some results for yourself I think at that point once you sort of knew that it was possible you think I don't think I care enough about this I don't think getting the absolute result is that important for me and I don't say that as a criticism it's more just like I know I can do it if I really want to I know I can now whereas before I don't know if I did know it was exactly that I had I'd lost the belief I didn't I I had succumbed to my career was potentially over in 2017 Mm. the end of this year and what I I think what I was able to do during our process was relief that of fear of my career could be over to just enjoying the final six months of my career yeah and racing and doing what I wanted to do and you know Quebec is late in the season and that moment that you're talking about we came out of the last corner Rigoberto Arana had attacked. You've been up the pop, you've been up the footpath a few hundred meters before. I was very <laughs> impressed with that. It's pretty heroic. He attacked, and you know Rigo wins. He's won Montreal like that, a Quebec like that, and I was able to pull him back. You know, it's it's a nothing thing in the whole scheme of things, but within my own mind to be able to do that move inside, you know, 500 meters to go with such a high quality rider, to be able to race freely and to be able to do that in that point 
I was really satisfied. That wasn't just the only point. It was just that the team was able, appreciative that I was still able to race as a teammate, um, not just purely be a one out and just disregard the team and only go for my own results. Mm. Of course, I was striving for that, mm. but I was still respecting my role within the team. So mm. there was a few elements yeah, going that. there. And, you know, ultimately, that, like I said already, that did set me up for this, the final chapter of my career, which was such an important part of my life, I think, which set me on a new direction, which is sort of where I'm at now, this, this, this next chapter. Mm. Um, what I want to ask you about now is a little bit about yourself, you know, Scott Burrow, doing all this, talking about all this, you know, you're a cyclist yourself. Is there a bit of that you can relate to you know myself even is there something from your sporting side that you can bring in is there some experiences that you bring to the table as well when you're speaking to different clients or in your own mind maybe it's sort of yes and no in my role the, the person in my who's doing my work you have to be very careful not to bring your stuff onto the client prematurely or in and you have to be careful to not sort of see the client through your eyes you got to see the client through their eyes because otherwise i'm going to bring your stuff in and and if I make, for example, if I ask, I make you say I want to run, win a race, and I just go, "I'll oh, do this, do this, do this, this," and you're like, well, "That's not going to work," because you know what's going to work. You, you're mm-hmm. the expert in your life. But because I have my own physical sporting background, when you say, "Oh, you know," when you're sort of expressing emotions or frustrations or concerns, I can equate that to my own level, which hasn't been as high as your level, certainly not in cycling at all. But I can equate it. So I guess I am sort of I'm, I'm I'm using that my own experience to help me mm. be empathetic to you to understand it and really know what is it like you know with what like that what you're saying within last year at um, Green Edge like you are navigating the dual functions of trying to get some results for yourself to open that part up and show others that you, you've got something to offer and also still not compl- you, you use the words not the dog the team you didn't want to dog the team and not do your team role so navigating that that tricky balance that was an important thing so when you're saying how hard that is and tricky that is and and the complexity i'm definitely sort of uh, at times yeah matching that up with my own tricky experiences but certainly at the same time i'm also trained to really get inside your shoes and your world and accept that and and not judge you and not judge you according to what my experience has Mm. been and what i know because the way you live and are is completely different the way I am. How could I sort of just go, oh, well, this is all you need to do, Mitch. Like how many times you've been good, given good advice and you haven't done it or it doesn't work mm. because people don't know you. So, so I guess yes and no. It does help me with, especially with the empathy about the trials and tribulations of, you know, trying to get the best out of yourself. Well, how do you cope? Like you hear, you're hearing these different stories, these hard moments. How do you separate not taking that stuff on board emotionally? Um, you know, well, I'm only talking about my race now, so yeah, it might yeah. be easy to just get rid of that. But you, you got to become invested in the, well, maybe you don't maybe that's the trick you don't have to become invested in the client but I would find it difficult not to become invested emotionally invested in the client come home bring some of this emotion home Mm. whether you talk about it or not your wife and your family are going to feel that you've just had a lot put on you Mm. how do you cope yeah so I want to say that in if you look at coaching there's almost you could view it as two different ways of coaching one way is where you are invested in the end result as much as the athlete that means you care and you're getting passionate and if you get disappointed if it works well or great that's good but at that point i think you're not at your most powerful as a coach to serve Mm. the athlete so i care about you 
and how I can help you. You care about your results that you get from the work with me. So the best way I can serve you is to focus on what do you need from me? What's within my control that I can do that helps you, that allows you to go and get those results, right? So while I loved cherry on top, icing on uh, cherry on top of the icing, like you said, icing on the cake, while I would love to see you get a great result in the race, if it doesn't happen, that's irrelevant to me because I'm still back in, okay, well, now, what, now what do I need to do to help Mitch again? Mm. So there's a, almost like a, a division or a separation between the results that you're striving for and what I'm, my role is and what, what, what I can control because I can't make you get that result. So what I'm getting at is because of that way of approaching it, going, okay, your job is to get the results. My job is to help you get the results. My job is not to guarantee the results. My job is to serve you. So because of that, the stress levels on me, like it's, it's less because mm. I'm not as attached to that result. I am attached to serving you really well. Is it been trickle to navigate that? Because I can imagine in the beginning you've gone too much. Yeah. But also you sometimes you've gone, I'm going to pull back, and you the client hasn't in, engaged enough. And you're like, I've been too yeah. removed from this person. Is yeah. it difficult or is every case different or you've found a really n- good way of doing it? It can be tricky for sure. In the early days when I was sort of coaching, so I went from the physical preparation and sports science and all that, and I was working with some football people. So I had a lot of expertise in their field. So that's good I could tell them that expertise but the power of what I had to offer was more asking them and ha- see what, what they think that they could come up with makes more empowers empowers them right gives them that next level performance but there was a situation with you in our journey whereas midway through our time together working together you found out from um, was it Orica Green Edge mm. then that they were called um, that you weren't going to get a new contract and at that point you went missing out of you went out of communications with me normally in my role um, the, the the approach is the client's an adult they will contact you when they're ready and um that sort of thing so leave it leave it with them sort of thing but it just kept nagging at me and i thought oh no at least at least i've got to check in with him and see mm. whether so I, I reached out then and um i wanted to make sure that because you were saying well is there any point in doing this because i don't even know if i'm going to be racing next year so is there any point in working on this performance mm. element i do remember that yeah and oh, yeah. i said well well but but the work i do can also help as a work with you as a person and what you're going to and navigating this situation so regardless at the end of the season is you know I, th- I don't know if I said this but I, was, I, I remember thinking like you said at the very least at the end of this season from this point onwards you look back and go well, at least I, I, I made the most of that rather than mm. wallowing in misery for the rest of the half year it's a fine line but you can step in, but I guess the, the approach that I use, it's like asking for permission. Mitch, do you mind if I say something that's outside the, what we were discussing? Yeah, sure. Or um, Mitch, do you mind if I check in on where you, we see we're at with this working relationship? So that sort of thing. Or really, it also can be the contracting that goes on between the coach and the athlete at the start. What do you want from me? You know, what does that look like? Um, what I need to do with my clients is I need to say to them, hey, I've got to tell you that I'm not an expert in these things that you you're want to work on. I help you with the process. So I might have some things that I can offer up that put into the conversation, but ultimately it's about helping you connect fully to your own full potential and working out how you're going to go about it. So part of it is setting those expectations at the start too. Do I get tangled up? Not so much. Early days, a little bit. Yeah, I was just about to say, it sounds like to me, hey, I'm just going to allow you to see all the tools you've got in your body or in your own mind I'm not going to put tools in there 
I'm not going to miraculously build all this stuff in you. You've got it all there. I'm just going to open, help you open the doors to let you realize what you've got to do it to win the race. That's It's spot on. Does that mean I've got nothing of value that I could add in? Mm. No, it doesn't mean that. But if we want you to perform, we want to do that as easily and as efficiently as possible. So if it means you can tap into something you've already got in you or that you've already used or already know, that's the way because mm. you want to do it. You don't want to have to do all this thinking work and learning work to be able to get the performance. So I want to see what you've got. And then if there's nothing there and I check with you, hey, Mitch, it looks like there's not. How do you feel about your options you've got? And you go, well, no, I don't think any of this is going to work. And then I might say, well, Mitch, do you mind if I suggest something? Because there's Mm. something I've got that that I wonder if it might be helpful. So, yeah, you're definitely trying to help them connect to what they've already got that's around them. And sometimes that might be other other staff members, other support coaches, other support people. And then sometimes there might be something like there might be a model or a way of thinking or a story that you might add in. And the key is, though, that at that point, I'm not expecting you to take it on. I'm just offering it up. And if it resonates with you and it works for you, great. If not, it drops the form. We, we go again and we work it out. So that is, that's about the craft and the way of working. Do you look for people yourself to then go, okay, look, people are coming to you for help. Do you go to other people to help you? Yes, I do. So I've got a lot of um, my peers and always working on the craft. And I also, um, I work with a, a, a person, another coach of my, myself on and off uh, the last four or five years. You know, I was talking before about being in, in, interested in the craft and how good you can be as a coach and all that. I have a belief that I don't think you can be as good a coach as you can be if you're not being coached yourself as well. Mm. I just think you lose that empathy, you lose that understanding of what it's like to be coached. Doesn't mean you have to co- uh, be coached, but at various times you need to be led and you need to sort of uh, put yourself in the shoes of a learner because it's a vulnerable p- position at times, isn't it? It's to recognise like I'm trying my hardest and I've done really well, but I'm all out of answers now, you mm. know. And, and sometimes that that admission might be um, frightening t- for some people, but it's but it's the truth and it's the way forward. Do you walk away sometimes and, you know, you've got success stories and you've also got, I guess, failures in a way, Mm. whether the client realizes it or not, you go, this didn't happen. I don't know why. Is that hard to take on? It does happen. It happened recently with me with a client, and um, the way we were working together, he was sort of uh, he brought it up maybe two thirds through our working relationship, and he, he said, "Oh, I want to check in with um, how engaged you are." He was wondering or feeling like I might have been fully engaged in the work that we were doing together. I was, but that's how he how he felt, and um, we went back and forth to try and clarify it. And the, there were some certain ways of working that I was doing. I think it was just a not quite gelling, and then I guess so. At that point, I'm looking to see what I can do differently. Tell me what I can do differently. You know, all right, okay, how does this sound? But then sometimes it's like with this client, it, they just didn't, didn't think it was going to work. It wasn't going to work well enough. So there's almost like a mismatch. So sometimes as a coach, you do everything right or you do your best and it's still not right for that person because it's just not a, it's not, that, not a connection or something goes wrong unintentionally. So yeah, that does happen. Mm, how yeah. does it make you feel? Yeah, good question. Um, early days and look that one I just told you about I thought about that on and off for a few weeks like Mm. could I have done differently you know there's a deep learning you know you learn more from your failures Mm. your so called failures early days it made me feel embarrassed and I'm humiliated and I was worried about what that client might have thought of me nowadays I'm a bit more mature now um I am a little bit sorry that it didn't work out. I am sorry for anything that I could have done differently for them that would have worked better that maybe they communicated me that I didn't quite pick up on. But then it's like more philosophical. It's like, you know what? I did do my best. I wasn't arrogant. I wasn't evil. 
I wasn't manipulative. I, I did do my best. It wasn't good enough. Perhaps there was some, also some communication stuff from the other other side of the equation that might have contributed as well. But in the end, you can't be great with everyone. Mm. It's just the way it is. The main thing at that point is, I want that client, for example, they say, well, I work with Scott. It didn't work out for me but they know that I didn't um, disrespect them, I didn't um, treat them badly, you know? So at the very least they go, well, it didn't work, but I can see why he, he, he doesn't mean he's not a good coach, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? That's what I want from my, personally. It's very philosophical, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> from your little bit of knowledge of, you know, your time working with me and your understanding of the pro world and even just sports in general, look, I've got no other real knowledge on what happens in AFL teams or soccer teams or whatever mm-hmm. other teams. But I can definitely speak on the behalf of cycling is that, again, this is something I feel like we do. We sharpen the knife so sharp physically, but mentally we leave it a little bit blunt. I feel like there's much more room for more people like yourself or, you know, sports psychologists or whatever it is in this field in the professional sport, especially cycling is needed. Why do you think we're not seeing that? And why is it not much more highly regarded? Yeah, I, I want uh, two things that jumped into my mind. One, sports psychology is still connected to psychology, which originated out of um, dysfunction, right? So you back in the days, you know, back in the 1800s, you went to a psychologist when something was wrong with you, you know what I mean? You might have been put in a, a you know, mental house or whatever. So it's, it's still got this connotation that there's something wrong and therefore there's something to be shameful about, even at sports psychology. It's shifting. Mm. Those in the know, they don't view it like that. So I, th- I wonder if that's still playing out. And then um, the other thing is when you go to uh, a coach and the bulk of what they do with you, I'm, I'm assuming this is how I'm reading um, high-level coaching and coaching and cycling in general, the bulk of what they do with you is a, is a training program. It's not actually a training program. It's a physical training program. So it's reps and sets. Right, so you're doing the physical part of your mm. development. That's good because you sort of know what to expect. You know your levels are going to go up, and now with bloody everyone's got a power meter, so it's even better. Uh, my levels here now, I can go here. Boom, I've got progress. I can stay in the bunch for longer. Blah 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 blah. So it's it's sort of obvious what to expect, and you can see the improvement. But with this, you imagine me trying to sell to you, hey Mitch. Um, I help people get the most out of them. And you say, what, what are you doing? I go, well, I don't even know what we're going to do, Mitch. We'll have to explore that together. And you're like, I'm not buying that. So I think that's a part of it. Like there's, because it can go anywhere, it can go anywhere. It's hard for sometimes people to sort of understand what they're going to get from it. Yeah, we need power meters for the mind, do we? Yeah. <laughs> Do we really want to stuff up cycling even, even more? No, I like power meters, actually. <laughs> Too much is bad. But, yeah, so I wonder if it's those sort of things. It's not as obvious of a thing mm. that people, the buyer, knows what they're going to get. And I, I do still reckon there's still that taboo of, um, you know, are you seen a sports side? Are you, like, can't you do it yourself? You know, are you weak? In actual fact, it's the opposite. In actual fact, in my observation, in the world, the people who do the most amazing things, whatever that is, for your level, they are the ones who actually tap into the most people around them. Mm. Like the Roger Federer, they are drawing on people all the time, to use one example, right? They're drawing on people all the time. They're not doing it alone because, why is that? Because they're stretching themselves. They want to be amazing. They want it to be great. They want, they want, and they know that having a person going to help them the chances of success but also maybe getting there a little easier and saving time and money and efficiency what advice can you give now to people out there listening 
the every Joe Blow who's out there riding, the weekend mm. warrior, or mm. even just someone who maybe doesn't ride, or even just the young aspiring pro or the old pro like me, because like you said, it, it was a, it was a really great tool. It wasn't tangible, my result. You could argue that. My case is a great case because at yeah, the end of it, there was I no- I wanted you to win Paru Bay and you said, I'm not sure if that's the right goal. Yeah. So we wanted that and you didn't get it. But anyway, you tried. <laughs> That's right, you know, and that's the thing. Like people, like you said, well, what's what's the advice to take out of this? Because, you know, if there's no set result, you know, why am I going to go out and do this? What, mm. What's why are you going to go and want to get? Why would help? you bother? Yeah, why would, why you, would bother? you bother? Yeah, so I guess it's some some of the stuff I've touched on. Um, one, you might be setting yourself a target that's much more ambitious than before. Like, oh, I want to, you know, say you're a club level rider now and you're 16 years of age, you're saying, I want to get, I'd love to get to the world tour. That's a stretch, right? So you might want to help someone help you navigate that. And even it might only just be a few conversations. What you're doing might not be working or you're wondering, like, I don't think it's, it's not, it's working, but it's, it's taking a lot of effort and energy. It's those sorts of things. When you're not satisfied with the way it is or you're not not sure the best way forward that's that's sort of why you would bother um usually ultimately it's problem based you know mm. it's like i'm not sure how to do it or what i'm doing is not working or now i haven't got a team and i don't know how to go about it those sorts of things so yeah i think it's ultimately it's about when you really want something but you think doing it on your own is either not the best way or not likely to be successful now here's the thing sometimes you don't know what you don't know mm. so when you first start training with a coach you go geez i and you and start doing some sessions or whatever and some assessments, you go, geez, I didn't know I had those gaps in my physicality on the bike. Yeah. I didn't know I had those gaps. So you become aware by working with someone. It's the same thing with this. You mightn't necessarily work with someone forever and ongoingly, but you can maybe come and go and you can at least explore some things and find it a bit about yourself and see, oh, this is actually where I'm at. You can do a version of an assessment too. So that can be very empowering as well. It doesn't mean you might work with someone forever, but at least you can sort of um, get someone else's take on you. Yeah. What do you think is the most fulfilling thing for you? You know, why do you keep coming back and doing this? You know, because it's challenging and sometimes it can be, I guess, um, maybe not so fulfilling or, you know, maybe not fulfilling is not the right word or, you know, a happy ending is probably the right word. But for you, what's the bit that sort of gives you that spark and you're like, this is something that I really just can keep sinking my teeth into and keep growing with. What do you love Mm. about it? Yeah, um, a few years ago I did this reflection and I I learnt about intrinsic motivation and intrinsic motivation being not, um, oh, I'm going to go to the gym because I I get health benefits. That's not actually purely intrinsic. Intrinsic motivation is when you're motivated to do something for the joy of doing it. Say you're playing with your kids, you know, just throwing a ball with them, that's fine. You're not doing it necessarily because it's good for them or whatever. You're doing it because it's fun, right? I coach and physically active, the main reason because I love being physically active just for itself. And now, of course, I layer other things on top of it like getting fitness or performance or all those social benefits or whatever. So anyway, I one of the things I love doing is learning. And so being a coach helps me stay in a learning space. So that's what I love. I do love helping people. And the other thing I love is that 
I love um, the fact that there's always a way forward. There's mm. always a way. You, you don't necessarily, it doesn't mean you're always going to get everything you want, but there's always a way forward. And that way ultimately is, is learning and hoping, hope, hopefully turning that learning into powerful results that you want. So why do I do it? Yeah, I love it because it, it helps people. It helps the world. And it's also a, a good vehicle for myself. Mate. You're looking at me like you believe me, which is good. <laughs> Well, mate, it's been great to chat. Thanks, thanks for that. Mate. Sorry it's, if I was um, a bit long-winded on some of my No, answers. no, we, we went around in circles and up and down, and <laughs> everyone knows all my problems as well now. So. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, mate. They're great. Awesome. And, um, hey, I just can I just say, the episodes I've loved, and people are going to go, oh, yeah, that was good and that was shit. I loved the Matt Heyman one that you mm. did, because you were in bloody hospital and all that, so that was good. The Scott McGrory winning the gold medal when his son was dying, Tragic, but just amazing. Love the Sven Tuft stuff. What a bloke that guy yeah. seems to be. But then the one that got me was the Giro TTT. Yeah, Triple T. That episode where you interviewed, that was epic. Epic. That was unbelievable. That was a brilliant listen. And then the bit where you said Sven came over the top and he, and he came to the front towards the end and he said, oh, I'm bringing this home. Yeah. Don't worry, I'm bringing it home. And I was like, holy shit. So he said, the figures was, he said um, six. He said he, in that last 90 seconds, I think it was like 620 watts. Something like that, yeah. Which is, so I asked a mate of mine who you might know, Tommy Nankervis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I just went to him a few weeks later or whatever. I go, how, much, how long could you hold 620 watts for? And you know what he said? What? What's on the end of it? <laughs> and that, that's the key. That is the mind coming in. The mind drives the body. What's on the end of it? And I thought to myself, there's a guy who knows what it takes, what's involved. So, yeah. Anyway closing story but I just wanted to share that, those those episodes well I might look a lot of your it's all great but I love those ones particularly because I'm Australian so I've got Australian bias awesome thanks Scott <laughs> thanks mate well what did you think of that one guys Scott Burrow a great guy to talk to as you can see very down to earth but He has a really good way and knack of just asking those right questions. And especially for me, back in 2017, a huge help for me that moment in my career to make me understand what I needed or wanted from the rest of my career. And it changed me to today. It set me on a new path. I'm very thankful for that. And I'm very thankful for the friendship that we have. And of course, for him and being so open and honest on this podcast. Like I mentioned in the middle of the podcast, super, super exciting. The Life in the Peloton beer is coming. Can you believe it? Keep your eyes open for that. If you haven't registered and you're really interested, get across and check out the Granite Classic. That will be happening on the 29th of April. You've got a couple of weeks to do that. Last minute entry. Love to see you up there in person. I'll be there running the evening, Saturday night, the dinner for the Granite Legends. So come across and check that out as well. Lots of thanks to go out to Rafa, who is supporting the podcast, of course, Will Jones, who puts the episode together, Meg behind the scenes, but of course, you guys for listening. I love hearing your feedback, and I hope you enjoy those mountain bike episodes, and now this episode, some great episodes coming up too. Guys, I hope to see you up in Beechworth, but if not, you'll hear from me on the podcast in a few weeks' time. Until then, guys, cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.